Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you spend 30 years in jail for a crime you didn't commit, how much money should you get paid by the state? Victor Rosario has an idea. Uh, it's no money in this, in, in this uh, whole entire world that they can pay even for one day to be a wrongful conviction. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll take a look at wrongful convictions and the fight for rightful restitution. We'll also look inside the medical care provided to one Vermont inmate. Plus, the surprising history behind King Philip's War, the battle between Native Americans and New England colonists. The narratives of King Philip's War actually mask a lot of the conflicts that were happening between the different colonies. And it makes it seem as if there's this English versus Indian divide, when in fact, the relationships were actually much more complicated. And we'll imagine a brighter future for an important New England tree. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. On December 21st, Darrell Jones walked out of a courthouse in Brockton, Massachusetts. 32 years after being convicted for a murder, he always maintained he didn't commit. Jones, who is African-American, was released based on suspicions that police tampered with video evidence and allegations of racial bias among jurors. Standing on the courthouse steps, Jones made a plea for others like him. I stayed in prison a long time, not just the fact of something I didn't do, but it was hard to get people to hear you. So I'm trying to get everybody here to understand one point. There's somebody else back at that jail that nobody's listening to that's probably innocent and been trying to fight like I've been trying to fight. And I'm just asking all the reporters and people that do this to sometimes give them a chance. Now, imagine yourself in that situation, walking out of court, your innocence finally proven. Would you expect the state to compensate you for your time behind bars? 37 states have some sort of law that allows the wrongfully convicted to file for compensation, including every state in New England except for Rhode Island. The dollar amount ranges widely, though, from state to state. For example, exonerees in Vermont can get between $30,000 and $60,000 for each year in prison, but New Hampshire caps the total award at $20,000. It can also be difficult to get any money at all from the state. Advocates say that's the case in Massachusetts, where a rewrite of the wrongful convictions compensation law is moving through the legislature. In light of the recently overturned cases, we've decided to revisit this November interview with a man who served decades for a crime he didn't commit, and a reporter who helped to tell his story. Jennifer McKim is a senior investigative reporter at the New England Center for Investigative Reporting, where she's been covering wrongful convictions and this legislative push. Jennifer, welcome to Next. Hello, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Victor Rosario. Victor is outreach pastor at the Tremont Temple Baptist Church in Boston. He was convicted for starting a fatal apartment fire in Lowell, Mass. back in 1982, but his sentence was overturned in 2014. A report from the New England Center for Investigative Reporting pointed to his innocence. He now runs a program to help former prisoners readjust to society. Victor, welcome to our program. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you to have me. 
Victor, I'm just wondering if we can start with you, and maybe you can take us back to, to that time in 1982 when your life changed. What, what happened to you all those years ago? In 1982, I came to uh, the city of Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, I began to be a, a worker uh, in one of the factories in Tewsbury, Massachusetts. Uh, hence, in those days, I had some, a uh, lot of situation with uh, drinking and, and, and using. And based on that, uh, I found myself in a situation where uh, I was in the wrong place uh, at the wrong time. The, the wrong place at the wrong time, and you were, you were convicted of setting a deadly fire that, that you did not commit one of the things that was pointed to was a, was a confession that you gave. W- why at the time did you confess to, to an arson that you didn't commit? I not confessed. Uh, you know, I just signed a piece of paper that was uh, before me in the English language. In that time, I really no understand uh, the English language. I only speak Spanish. As we'll hear, there are a number of holes in in the case against you. Now that the court has established your innocence, I, I guess I'm wondering what it feels like to be a free man so many decades later. I I feel like uh, the, the the system uh, betrayed me. Uh, that's what I feel. I feel like uh, uh, the system that was uh, designed to protect me. Uh, uh, as a citizen, uh, felt me. Uh, even then, I would love to give to society the best of, of my years that I had. J- Jennifer, what in the system failed Victor back at the time of his conviction? Um, there was many things that happened, and I think that's what often happens with these wrongful conviction cases, that it isn't just one thing, but many things that leads to uh, injustice. False confessions is a big problem that people end up confessing for things that they didn't commit, either because they didn't understand or they were pressured or it was the only way they thought that somehow that would help them. Uh, in Victor's case, there was issues with um, science that showed that he had um, lit this fire, and years later they realized that the science was debunked and a problem. Um, what's really interesting in, in his case was uh, so reporters from Boston University and the New England Center spent several months working on his case, peeling through the case, looking at the issues of what happened. Um, during that time that he did so- sign that statement, he also spent the ev- spent a long evening being interrogated by police. Um, so there's many things wrong with the case. Victor, would you like to share some more? I think that the 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 case in in in, in reality, I think that the, the the police fabricated the case because they found this this young man uh, no English at all. Uh, just the f- the person that was there, I was there. I I cannot deny that. So, so Jennifer, I guess I'm wondering. With the work that you've done looking into so many of these wrongful conviction cases, what are some threads that do pull them all together? Obviously, Victor's fact pattern is going to be different than than others, but in almost all these cases, you have some sort of a prosecutorial rush to judgment. You have, as we just heard about in the case of his public defender, um, some very serious uh, problems perhaps with people uh, having conflicts of, of interest. But 
What are the other things? What are the things that make these these wrongful conviction cases all tie together in some way? It's really interesting because I think um, with the again when the DNA cases came up and it, people really re- really learned that in fact so many people are indeed in prison who are wrongfully convicted and then they started to peel apart the issues and and DNA makes it so easy because you can prove that you weren't there but so many cases like Victor's are more complicated because you you don't have that silver bullet and what's what's sort of troubling is that that men who have been convicted of crimes and are released um, get more services and more help than people like Victor, who uh, the, the, the justice system kind of spits out of the prison system and says, sort of, I'm not even sure if they say I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. but open the door and send you out without that type of help. And so we had looked um, looked at these cases, realized that there had been since this 2004 law, which uh, provides some type of restitution and compensation for the wrongfully convicted. 67 people have filed for it. Less than half have got it. The average payout is about three hundred and sixty four thousand dollars. And it takes forever. Uh, Your story, Victor, your conviction was overturned. You were released from prison, but you spent more than three decades there. Have have you applied for restitution from the state? Well, right now, it's just uh, basically I just that's the kind of question that only my lawyer can answer. Uh, But uh, it's it's just in a process of waiting to see what my lawyers today going to do regarding to that. It is, as Jennifer outlined, a very long process, and it's a process that's only proved fruitful for for some people. I know that you you can't talk much about your your appeal. I I will ask you, though, Victor, does $300,000 or maybe the maximum of $500,000, does that begin to approach a level of compensation that would be comfortable for you having spent 32 years in prison? I don't think so. I think there is not. Uh, it's no money in this in, in this uh, whole entire world that they can pay even for one day to be a wrongful conviction. Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I not believe that, you know, because if you look at it, you know, all the things that has happened into my life, uh, beginning with the loss of my mother, beginning with the loss of my father, beginning with the loss of my children, then I never grow up with them. They never grow up with me. Uh, you know, I met my daughter uh, after almost 36 years. I met my daughter some them two months ago, and we have a reunion together. You know, you, you can tell me, you know, see, see that amount can pay for, at least for that, you know. Uh, it's, not, it's not money. It's that the, the system needs to be changed. That's what it is. The system needs to be changed, and this thing not continue to happen. So, so there's there's three things at least that we're talking about here, Jennifer. It's the it's the system that allows uh, Victor Rosario and others to be wrongfully convicted. Uh, there's a system that provides for restitution, but is needlessly complicated. And then there's the third piece of it, which I, I guess we should talk a bit more about: is is how is it that five hundred thousand dollars is is a cap that the state has decided is is worth 32 years or four years or even even a day in prison. 
Well, so when the law was first passed in 2004, it was um, that was the cap that they were able to get through uh, legislation. And when we started to relook at this thing a, a year or so ago, um, it, it was clear that, that that cap had never changed. And lots of people felt like it was needlessly low and also um, confusing because you have people who've spent 38 years in prison compared to people who've spent several years and and, and all of them have the same cap. So there has been legislation submitted. Uh, there was a discussion to eliminate the cap altogether. My understanding right now in the bill that uh, was passed in the Senate is that there is a $2 million cap being discussed. Let me, let me intercede in here. Please okay? do, yes. Because, because what happened is that, that they taken from the point of view of, of outside. But let's look at it from the inside perspective. Let's look at it that inside the prison system, you know, a worker, the only thing they they uh, receive for pay is 50 cents uh, for a day. You work for a whole entire day for 50 cents or 75 cents or a dollar. The, the one that receives a dollar, okay, is, 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 is an amazing, basically it's a blessed man. Okay, because that's the salary for a prisoner when the prison is in prison system, and that never changed. That never changed. Even from the eighty, when I went in, my first salary was fifty cents. Mm. So um, you're asking about uh, Massachusetts was somewhere sort of in the middle in terms of what uh, different states provide. Some give lots more. Some have no cap at all. Some have less. So we sort of found that this this state was sort of in the middle of, of what it was providing its wrongfully convicted folks. Victor, I'm wondering if you can tell us very briefly about the work that you do today when you're working with people who are... Uh, being released from prison, what are the services you're providing? What are the things you're able to to tell people and do for them? Well, first of all, uh, one of the things that, that, that I do is just connecting to freedom. And connecting to freedom is uh, just trying to connect them then with society and also connecting them with the family. Uh, that, that's one of the things that right away when I came out, uh, just, just saw it, that it was needed. The reason was because one of the guys, when they came out, the first thing that they asked me was uh, how much time I have to be in the shower. Basically, he was thinking uh, his mind was in the prison system, no was outside. And for that, uh, it began to be a program called Connecting to Freedom uh, Days and, and 88 and Tremont Street in downtown Boston where I work. Hmm. Well, Victor Rosario and Jennifer McKim, I want to thank you both so much for sharing these stories with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Victor Rosario is an outreach pastor in Boston and a victim of wrongful conviction. Jennifer McKim is an investigative reporter at the New England Center for Investigative Reporting. We've got a link to that 2010 NECIR story that cast doubt on Victor Rosario's conviction on our website, as well as a link to Jennifer's reporting on the Darrell Jones case at Next newengland.org. There have been rumors and allegations coming out of Vermont's prison system for years about inmates requesting medical care and not getting the help they need. But getting the full story can be challenging. The inmates involved are behind bars, sometimes they're dead, and officials are bound from giving their accounts by privacy rules. Roger Brown is an exception. He kept a diary. Taylor Dobbs reported his story for Vermont Public Radio. 
Last month, Vermont inmate Roger Brown died of metastatic cancer at the prison infirmary in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Based on his diary, prison medical staff provided him with ibuprofen, Tylenol, and gel shoe inserts to manage the agonizing pain of his spreading cancer. We had a VPR staffer voice Brown's entries. Here's one he wrote at the end of September. September 23rd, Saturday. Awake all night again. Back pain real bad. Breakfast, lunch, waiting for yard. Agony still. So much ibuprofen starting to scare me. Not taking care of the pain. Supper. Brown was one of more than 200 Vermont inmates sent to state prison in Pennsylvania due to a shortage of beds in Vermont. According to his diary, he spent weeks asking staff in Pennsylvania for medical care, receiving little more than over-the-counter drugs. There's no evidence in the diary that Roger Brown knew he had cancer. September 25th. Can't sleep at night. Hip on fire. Painful. I think it's broken. This is government-funded suffering and death in some ways. He did not get the medical treatment or care that he clearly, clearly needed. Anna Stevens is the outreach director for the advocacy group Vermonters for Criminal Justice Reform. Corresponding with current and former inmates and their families, she's heard similar stories. Seeking help, seeking support, be it medical, be it mental, be it about addiction, be it about anything, is kind of a very slow, very arduous, relatively unattentive process. State corrections officials refuse to comment on Roger Brown's specific case because they haven't yet completed a required review of his death. Benjamin Watts is the health services director of Vermont's Department of Corrections. He says a full review like this puts together a timeline and all available facts of the case. Which is reviewed very closely, usually numerous times by me, the director of nursing, and the chief of mental health who work um, as part of the health services division to get a sense of what the root cause of the issue was, uh, whether there were any policy and procedure violations, and what steps could be taken to uh, improve health care services going forward. But because case specifics are protected by patient privacy laws, and because prisons are inherently insulated from public view, it's hard to tell how those health care services are measuring up. In online comments, some Vermonters have expressed the opinion that inmates gave up their rights by committing crimes, and that prison health care standards should not be a major concern. How we treat the least popular among us says a lot about how seriously we take our constitutional protections, and our legal protections. That's Tom Dalton, the executive director of Vermonters for Criminal Justice Reform. When somebody is convicted of a crime and they become incarcerated, they're paying the penalty for their crime, but the penalty is the incarceration. It's not added suffering due to medical neglect. Roger Brown was serving time for lewd and lascivious conduct with a child and was scheduled for release in April 2019. By the end of September, Brown's condition was deteriorating. September 28th, Thursday, breakfast. Went down to medical, had three more x-rays taken, couldn't sleep at all again last night. After going to medical, my back has been in spasms ever since. Lunch, supper. Pill line again tonight, still no pain medication. A few days later, Brown stopped writing in his diary because he was in too much pain. His cellmate Clifton Matthews took over. October 7th to October 12th, Roger continues to go downhill. I'm frantic. I can't get staff to do anything. I wrote to Beth Herp, the chaplain. Matthews tried for more than two weeks to get help for Brown. This is the last entry. October 14th, Roger continued to fail all day. He is down to bones and moans. 
I'm frantic. I get Officer Ballou to look in on Roger. He agrees, and we move him up to medical under another medical emergency. That is at 7 p.m. By 8 p.m., we get him admitted to the infirmary. This is the last time I saw Roger alive. We were continually rebuked and refused medical attention, told repeatedly it was all in his head, even at the point where he could no longer stand or sit up. Brown died October 15, 2017, in prison in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. His cause of death was listed as metastatic cancer. He was 68. Camp Hill prison officials refused to be interviewed about Brown's case, but they released the following statement. Mr. Brown's Vermont DOC medical record was delivered to the State Correctional Institution at Camp Hill, along with the inmate, on June 12, 2017. At the time of reception, this inmate received a complete medical evaluation and was provided any necessary medical treatment in accordance with DOC policy. Pennsylvania is also conducting a review of Brown's death. Two weeks after Brown died, a Vermont inmate who was recently transferred to an in-state prison from the Pennsylvania prison also died of cancer. His name was Tim Adams. Vermont DOC officials are expected to conduct a review of his death, too. That was Taylor Dobbs reporting. Coming up, the surprising history that helped to shape New England, King Philip's War. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We've told the stories of many refugees from countries like Syria and Iraq, people who escaped war to start their lives over in a peaceful New England. But during the early years of European colonization, New England was a war zone too, where colonists fought indigenous people over land, resources, and the right to self-government. King Philip's War, fought from 1675 to 1678, was perhaps the most devastating of these conflicts for both sides. The Wampanoag leader Metacom, known by the colonists as King Philip, organized attacks on 12 settlements before the colonists gained control of the region. Since then, as it often happens, the colonial perspective has dominated the historical narrative. In her upcoming book, Our Beloved Kin, A New History of King Philip's War, historian Lisa Brooks flips the script, focusing on the stories of Native American leaders. Lisa Brooks is Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Amherst College. She did some of her research by tracing the steps of key players in the war, including Witamu, a powerful female Wampanoag leader who both negotiated with colonists and also held one of them captive. I asked Brooks to give me an example of something she learned by going out on the land, something she wouldn't have learned by reading or talking to other historians. There's so many examples, but one in particular was one of the main figures in this history is the English captive Mary Rowlandson. And um, she wrote an account of her captivity during this war. And she was, importantly, the person who she identified as her mistress, the woman who held her captive, who was Wiedemo. People have read her story for hundreds and hundreds of years. But what I was trying to do is flip the script on her story and really understand her travels through Native networks, Native places, with Native people. And I did a lot of work trekking her journey, right, both on foot and by car 
and also by paddling in canoes. And one of the things that I learned from going out on the land, not just by myself, with other people who can really read the land, is it was clear that they were moving towards very swampy areas, places that were refuges because the English men did not like to try to trek through swamps. Oftentimes, Mary Rowlandson's narrative gives us the impression that she's just moving up and down a kind of wilderness, right? She uses that word. It's very common at the time. Um, and when we go to the places where she traveled through, and we know the historical context of those places in the Connecticut River Valley, for example, we know that they're moving there in the spring, in the late spring, because these are the places that women are going to plant. The land on the riverbanks turns green. And this is in Vermont, where it's pretty cold, well before we see it turning green elsewhere. But also we were able to see the terraces on the sides where women planted and where they could have harvests at different times of year. You've described for us some of the indigenous networks and pathways, the ways of mm-hmm. describing uh, the the terrain and the, mm-hmm. the hills and valleys of this region. I, I mm. guess I'm wondering if you can describe from the colonists' point of view what New England was at, at the time. I mean, what, what, sure. what was here? So one of the things that I knew going into this but deepened considerably was my understanding of how the English settlers in particular um, in New England saw this land into which they entered, right? And they entered into an indigenous space that was already cultivated, that was already managed. um, And they sometimes recognized that this was a place that, unlike England, was still immensely forested, right? I mean, imagine encountering a coast um, on which you see pine trees that are some 300 feet tall. And when the English looked at those pine trees, they saw land waiting to be cleared. um, And they saw the potential for uh, logging. They saw the potential for creating pine masts um, for the King's Navy. They saw the potential for creating lumber that could be used to build settlements that could feed sawmills. But there also were many spaces that were already cultivated by indigenous women that were vast planting fields. And they used a very different kind of agriculture than the settlers did in that they used mound agriculture, which is creating very big mounds um, with companion planting of corn, beans, squash, sunflower, sunchoke, pumpkins, all kinds of different um, plants that grow well together and nourish each other. And they had many different planting techniques that ensured that they could use the same fields repeatedly. And they also did some shifting agriculture where they would let some fields lie fallow. And so when settlers saw those fields, They craved those lands for their own forms of cultivation. Um, So they thought that they needed to change those into fields that could be plowed. They wanted to turn them into grazing grounds for their cattle. Um, And the cattle were allowed to run free. So that meant they were also infiltrating Native women's planting fields. And that was actually one of the key causes of the war. I'm wondering if if I might have you read something as we talk about the lead up to to the war itself you you have a mm-hmm. a chapter here in which you're imagining what this m- might have been like uh leading up to the the period of hostilities can you maybe set up this passage for us a little bit with what what we're going to hear and what you're writing about here what i was trying to do 
is to try to just take a moment to imagine what it might have been like um, for Widamu and her sister. Her sister was actually um, the wife of Philip, for whom the war was later named. They were all Wampanoag leaders. And I wanted to try to imagine the beginning of the war from the perspective of these women leaders. But I also wanted to imagine it from a place, Montop, that is really important to the war, that this is a stronghold, but it also is a planting place. Um, It's a place where people gathered. It's a place where people um, had ceremony and sang. But at this moment, it's really thinking about the conversations that happened before the war started. And I should also just point out that this takes place um, in late June 1675. During the solstice, they had met at Montop, surrounded by cedars that formed the four poles, as their ancestors always had. They danced, grateful the plants had given fruit. They gathered together in families before the great cliffs, the light of the moon reflecting off the gray stone, the undulations of the ocean rumbling behind them. The dome of the sky flickered with stars, a reminder of the world to which they would return. They heard stories from the elders who had remarkably endured, Their mothers, aunties, and grandmothers urged them to consider the road that lay before their children and grandchildren. Men who had seen the Pequot towns raised urged forbearance, while others recalled driving back the Mohawks. They heard stories of loss and regeneration. They saw every being in motion, together and in opposition, yet always striving toward balance. All around them, springs and rivulets lit by the moon sought the path of least resistance through the ground, finding their way home to the ocean, its waves governed by the moon. They understood the motion that always finds its way to stillness. They knew they were only expressions of these impulses. At the same time, they understood that every child there that night, held in her grandmother's arms or perched in the crook of an old oak, was, without doubt, the most precious being in the world. It's a, it's a beautiful passage and a beautiful description of this place. Where, where exactly is, is Montop? Um, Montop is in what is now called Bristol, Rhode Island. So Montop was taken by conquest after the war, and then English settlers developed the town of Bristol in, in its place. When we think of a war today, it's probably quite a bit different than than the war that is described in this history. W- without getting mm-hmm. into the 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 great detail that your book gets into, maybe you can just talk about what broadly this war was like. What was the what was the violence between uh, the settlers and the native tribes like throughout this period? One of the things that's really interesting about the warfare in this period is that. It had so much to do with how well you understood your environment. So even as English troops were trying to invade Montauk, they didn't know how to do it, really. They had an idea, having trained in the English style by practicing marching across fields, and they imagined they would show up to Montop and either force Philip to surrender or that they would engage him and his men in face-to-face combat. 
But what happened instead was that they had to face um, a kind of indigenous guerrilla warfare. Indigenous people were hiding behind trees and in bushes. And it appeared to many of the English soldiers um, that the bullets, and they were really sprays of bullets more than anything else, uh, were coming out from nowhere, from the woods themselves. Um, and there were very early incidents of what we'd now call friendly fire because of this confusion. And one of the things that was most interesting to me is the lag time between the orders that were sent um, by colonial leaders and the actions on the ground by colonial militia and colonial armies because it took so long for messages to travel. There's a almost, if it weren't so serious, almost amusing letter from Josiah Winslow, the governor of Plymouth Colony, who was really set on capturing Philip easily, um, where he's sending out directives to his people about what to do um, with Philip and with Montop, when they've already arrived at Montop to find nothing there. If they didn't uh, properly anticipate the, the style of warfare, they, they also seemingly did not anticipate Witamu or the role of, of women in these Native societies. Can you talk about that for a moment? You know, Witamu was an amazing diplomat, right? Um, long before this war happened, she was really striving to try to protect um, the sustenance lands of her people through all kinds of diplomacy um, among Native leaders, but also with the colonial leadership in places like Plymouth and Rhode Island. Uh, Widemu was a song squaw, which loosely translates to um, rock woman, but it really has to do with the strength of a woman leader and the way on which people can really rely and depend on her strength. And there were many such women who were in those positions. Widemu was not an anomaly. She wasn't an exception especially in communities that relied on horticulture, on planting. Women leaders were a major facet of those communities. And that was something that the colonists didn't quite know how to deal with because they came from a, a, a patriarchal and patrilineal culture. And it was actually unusual for women to hold those positions of power and to be seen as the main diplomats for their people. And in fact, when women did take up roles, indigenous women took up roles that were seen as masculine within English culture, then they would often be characterized in ways that made it look like they were transgressing gender norms and needed to be put in their place. Mm. I'll ask you as a final question, what some of the biggest surprises were to you uh, as you explore this history. What are some things that stuck out to you as a historian that made you rethink the way you you imagine New England of that time? One of the things that I found that was quite striking is that there are a series of narratives that were written by uh, Puritan ministers or military uh, commanders that historians often rely upon in trying to reconstruct the events of the war. And I would find many instances where those narratives were directly contradicted by the primary source documents from that period. Um, one great example is the death of Wiedemu's husband. There are three narratives about his death. Um, and in all of those narratives, he's basically um, taken at his, they call it his hunting house, um, by 
representatives from Plymouth Colony at the time. It's uh, Josiah Winslow, who was not governor at the time, but he's credited with with the capture of Wamsutta. And they give the reason for this capture being that he was conspiring with the Narragansetts against the English, right? That's the reason that's given in the post-war narratives. Well, when you dig into the documents, you find out that he was taken not because he was conspiring with a native neighboring nation, but because um, he was daring to um, sell land to Rhode Island colonists and not Plymouth colonists. And Plymouth and Rhode Island were actually battling it out with each other. Um, many of the colonies were battling it out with each other over land claims. There are there are deeds where uh, two different groups of colonists are claiming the same huge tract of land, and they have deeds signed by the exact same native leader saying that this land was given to them. And so I think one of the things that the narratives of King Philip's War does is actually mask a lot of the conflicts that were happening between the different colonies. Um, And it makes it seem as if there's this English versus Indian divide, when in fact, um, the relationships between native people and between colonists and among colonists and among Native people were actually much more complicated. Lisa Brooks, Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Amherst College, thank you so much for sharing this book with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for um, allowing me the opportunity to share some of it with you, too. The book called Our Beloved Kin is out from Yale University Press on January 9th. Brooks will also be launching a website with maps, historical documents, and images from her journeys through New England's indigenous geography. For now, you can see some maps of Native homelands in New England on our site, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, engineering a mightier elm tree. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. It's nearing the end of mating time for deer in our region, and deer hunting season has about wrapped up. This time of year, a more likely encounter with a deer would be on the road, a bad outcome for both a motorist and a deer. New England states rank right around the national average for likelihood of car strikes, but it's much more dangerous in rural areas during mating season. WNPR's science reporter Patrick Scahill went on the hunt with a biologist to find out more, and he uncovered an interesting correlation, roadkills and acorns. Mating time means more deer on the move, crossing roads and highways. Andrew Labonte, a wildlife biologist with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, says that makes November and December a peak time for roadkills. They're just pursuing the female and they go wherever she goes. In the year 2000, there were about 18,000 deer vehicle collisions. That's a lot. Since then, especially on the shoreline and in Fairfield County, the state has worked to reduce that number by allowing more hunting and making it easier for hunters to attract the deer. 2015 even saw the introduction of bow hunting on Sundays. We've been adding a lot of these tools essentially to the toolbox that allow us to manage these populations that had been out of control. As a result, car collisions still happen, but a lot fewer, about 4,000 last year. And state data obtained by WNPR do suggest that more hunting can lead to fewer collisions. In fact, every year since 2009, it's been hunters, not cars and trucks, that kill the most deer. Then there are acorns. That's a favorite food of deer in fall and winter. When there's a lot of acorns out there, 
hunter success tends to go down, and when there's very sparse amount of acorns, hunter success tends to go up. That's because fewer acorns mean deer forage more, increasing the odds that they'll come across a hunter. Labonte says relatively high acorn counts in the last two years reduced hunter kill rates, but this year may be different. In spots like eastern Connecticut, where gypsy moths damaged a lot of trees this year, Labonte says potentially low acorn numbers could be a boon this hunting season. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. He's got some cool charts that examine car crashes and acorns. You can find them at nextnewengland.org. As we ponder the tiny nut that grows into the mighty oak, let's also consider another iconic tree. No matter where you live in New England, you probably know of at least one Elm Street. But if you go there, you probably won't find too many surviving elm trees. In the mid-20th century, Dutch elm disease killed off millions of the species. Many of these were old, established trees. Towns and forests were notably changed. As New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, new invasive pests and disease are killing off other species of trees. And watching this, some ecologists have been engineering a comeback for the American elm. The history of the elm in America goes back to the earliest settlements by Europeans. This effort to somehow reconcile nature and artifice, the countryside and the city. Thomas Campanella is author of a history of the elm called Republic of Shade. He spoke to Wisconsin Public Radio. Charles Dickens actually talked about this when he visited New Haven. New Haven was known as the City of Elms. It had a a remarkable collection of elm trees on all its streets. And he wrote that the elms, quote, bring about a kind of compromise between town and country, as if each had met the other halfway and shaken hands upon it. The elm is a fast-growing tree and can establish itself in a city and a forest. But a century ago, when faced with a fungus known as Dutch elm disease, which usually attacked the tree through a beetle, millions died. But not all. It's one of the biggest elms left in Massachusetts. On a neighborhood street in Amherst, Massachusetts, Christian Mark Sousa, forest ecologist, stands in front of an enormous American elm. It's an old tree that's about 100 feet tall, settled in a front yard at the edge of the sidewalk. And it has the classic elm shape where it has all this flare at the bottom from the roots. The technical term is buttress roots, Mark says. Many old elms that survived over the years, like this one, have been treated with an antifungal. When the trees started to die off and had to be cut down, Mark says a certain beauty was lost. When there were still avenues where the whole avenue was lined with elms, they would connect above the street and there would be branches all above you, and it felt like a vaulting ceiling of a cathedral. Marx, who is with the Nature Conservancy, is among the tree ecologists working with the U.S. Forest Service to grow and plant a new population of disease-resistant elms. The goal is to plant them in cities and along riverbanks in floodplain forests. It is a large-scale restoration effort and will take years, but they're on their way. We're taking them from this size container and putting them in a bigger one. And growing them on to four to six feet. Glenn Cutting and his family will be tending these elms at their nursery about 20 miles away. Marks started some of them from branches. The more plush ones, he says, he grew from seed. And you can see the label here where, where this is the mother, R18-2. It's highly tolerant uh, selection. And then number 65 is a tree from New England that was really big and lived a long time despite Dutch elm disease being all around it, so we suspect it might be tolerant. 
It sounds like it's a lot of engineering. And it is, says Marx. But it's about giving the American elm species a boost. The goal is to get the elm to a point where it can resist pathogens and be a replacement tree for other species in jeopardy, like maples, vulnerable to the Asian longhorn beetle, which infested 35,000 trees in Worcester in 2008. They had to be cut down. Another pest, the emerald ash borer, has killed off millions of ash trees around the country, and it's moving up the Connecticut River Valley. Keith Nislow is with the U.S. Forest Service. And so our strong focus on entomology and pests and pathogens allows us to do really robust projections about what would be lost. What is lost when trees are killed off is what Nislow refers to as goods and services that come from nature's complex systems. From the top, shade and cooling. At the lower level, tree roots intercept and filter pollutants that get into groundwater and rivers, like car oil, animal waste, and farm fertilizer. And so then we have a pretty good idea of what a species that could come in and stand in and provide those services. Right now, that's the elm. The species, like a few others, has always been a more bang-for-your-buck tree that can thrive in wet forests and tolerate dry city life. My name is Alexander Sherman, and I am the assistant city forester for the city of Springfield, Mass. Sherman is standing at the edge of a planting field filled with a variety of species, including about 100 elms grown by the Nature Conservancy's Christian Marks. These are Christian trees, yep. He, he brought them down in, in, in his car. He had them all packed in, and uh, they're planters, and uh, we had some volunteers out here. And they're pretty small. It will be another five years at least before they're planted in the city, says Sherman. Springfield has been re-establishing disease-resistant elms since 2006. About 400 trees have been planted so far. What began long ago as a New England street tree appears to be taking hold again. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. Finally, we're going to talk about bagpipes. Yes, it turns out that New England is actually home to one of the largest manufacturers of the big, boisterous instrument. As NHPR's Todd Bookman reports, the New Hampshire-based company is facing an unexpected wee kink in its international supply chain. Richard Spaulding is in no mood. You know any good bagpipe jokes? No. A retired state policeman, Spaulding is too busy managing a bagpipe empire. The company's name is Gibson Bagpipes. It is the largest bagpipe maker in North America, fourth largest in the world, and after launching decades ago in Ohio, it now calls Nashua, New Hampshire home. Their baseline set of pipes start at about $1,400. On the manufacturing floor, three workers are filling the day's orders. Master craftsmen are standing at lathes, while another applies a lacquer finish. Everything's done by hand. The distinct bagpipe sound comes from air being blown through what are called drones, the pipes that point over the shoulder. Gibson and most pipe makers turn these parts out of something called African blackwood. It is a gorgeous dark color and rock hard. This is the African blackwood. Whoa. Dense. Very dense. And that's why, that's why it resonates the sound. Uh, and that's why bagpipes have been made out of these for hundreds of years. African blackwood, though, is under environmental stress. Last year, an international consortium that monitors the trade of animal and plant products, it moved African blackwood along with another bagpipe staple, Coco Bolo, to a higher risk level. The woods aren't threatened with extinction just yet, but as of earlier this year, if you want to move this wood across international borders, you need a permit. So last December, 11 months ago, 
Gibson started its application process with the federal government. Had to fill out all that paperwork with a check for the uh, permits, mailed it down. They said they never got it. Got lost in the mail. Lost in the mail. Without this permit in hand, Gibson can continue to make pipes with African blackwood, but it can't export them. That's a big financial blow. How much of your market is overseas? 20 to 25 percent. So those sales are all on hold right now? And we've lost them for a year, almost a year. And some of those you'll never recuperate. In the spring, Gibson resubmitted its application. It also reached out to the offices of Senators Maggie Hassan and Jean Shaheen for help. They urged the Departments of Agriculture and Interior to streamline the process. More recently, Governor Chris Sununu also weighed in. It's been a bipartisan bagpipe effort to get these products moving again. Then... Mail shows up yesterday. There's the big envelope from uh, Fish and Wildlife with all our permits in the master file. Uh, we're all excited. We can start shipping internationally again. Uh, I'm going through them. They spelt the city of Nashua wrong. How do you misspell Nashua? Uh, N-A-S-H-V-A. There's no V. The Latin way of spelling it, I think. I don't know. <laughs> so Spalding called the feds about the typo. They said, yes, that is a big deal. They're apparently going to fix it and rush out the new permits to Gibson. Until then, international orders remain on hold. And the best bagpipes Nashua has to offer are still only available to domestic customers. Todd Bookman brought us that story, but that's not him playing the pipes. You're hearing Eric Bean. He's an employee at Gibson's. If you'd like to order a New Hampshire-made bagpipe for a loved one overseas, worry not. Since Todd reported the story in November, Gibson Bagpipes did get an updated permit with the correct spelling of Nashua and can export once again. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Ashley Taylor, Doug Sugartz, and Kara Foster. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. And thank you for listening this year. You can find any of our previous 73 episodes, yeah, 73, on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. And Happy New Year. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. <laughs>